Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, frequent podcaster, less frequent filmmaker, but I would like to get back to it. And joining us this evening, he is the writer and director of the breakout smash of this year's Fright mm. Fest, Benny Loves You. It's Carl Holt. Carl, hello. <laughs> hello. Breakout smash, I like the term. Um, yeah, Not quite, but yes, it's me. I'm here. How are you doing? <laughs> I, I think you're being very hard on yourself and self-deprecating there, Carl, because I, I didn't really see a dissenting voice. It was bizarre. Yeah, that's the best way that I can term it. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I work and live in a bubble. I know nobody in the film industry. I've got my best mate, Mark, that I make short films with. But and then this was like one of those midlife crisis points. I hit 40 and I was like, shit, you know, I've always wanted to be a film director and it's never going to happen unless I get off my ass and actually do it. And yeah. so, you know, took all the savings that I had and thought, right, I'm going to do this. Thought it would take like a year and a half, shot it around my friend's house. We hired some offices as well. Um, and then spent four or five years doing it. And in that time, you think, no one's going to watch this. I mean, it's probably not the time to get into it, but the road to get to Fright Fest was a difficult one. We've had lots and lots of downs and a couple of ups on the way. So when that reaction came from Fright Fest, it was almost unreal. And it mm-hmm. still hasn't quite sunk in. It's still just one of those things where you think, shit, people are watching it and people are liking it and then it's like oh no can't be real <laughs> that doesn't sound right so i kind of protect myself from the good reviews <laughs> i hear that but yeah um we can dig into that in a while however your film choice this evening carl silent night deadly night mitch can i just quickly jump in yeah. and say we're here again our third festive season and our first outing of the year for your festive theme tune to the show Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dusted that off uh, for the first time, which is always nice. (laughs) Carl, why this one? Why this one? Well, I mean, I had a look at what your podcast was about. And I remember I saw this maybe back when I was 18. It's not, it's not, I can't say it's a favorite of mine, but I remember pissing myself laughing the first time I watched it. Okay. And, um, I know that when it opened, it was panned by critics. Mm -hmm. A lot of people said it was unintentionally hilarious. There was parents picketing outside cinemas. And I think this all started, if I remember rightly, it was because there were TV spots for the film that aired on daytime TV in America. And I think it was during a football game or something. And so when kids watched the trailer for it, they were were really shit scared. (laughs) So all these parents started to pick it outside cinemas. And I, I famously, Siskel and Ebert, read out the names of the producers and the writers and directors on their show to shame them, <laughs> saying the film was that bad and had absolutely no redeeming qualities. And, and it was blood money. They actually used that term. And um, so anyway, now it seems to have, you know, it's been re-released. It's got a bit of a cult following, I guess you would say now. Mm. So I thought, 
it could be worth going back and taking a second look. I, I wanted to see whether it was to try and understand the tone. Was it intentional humor? And what's the film trying to say? So I thought I'll go back and have a rewatch, which I did last week. Excellent. Okay. Now I quite like this. This is this is an interesting angle to take on this. So have you have you had you seen it between then and now? No, I saw it when I was 18 and then I saw it last week. <laughs> See, now I think this is really cool. I think that the fact that you haven't gone for something that you have a massive attachment to, but you're just kind of like, I was curious about this. There was a lot of cultural white noise in between. Let's look at it again. Interesting. And I thought it kind of fit the theme of your podcast. So that's why I chose it. It certainly does that, I would say. Hard agree. Uh, Andy, what about yourself? What's your background with Silent Night, Deadly Night? Mitch, I think you already know this because I've talked to you about this film before. I have talked to you Yes, about... I to the people. <laughs> right, okay. Well, I saw this film years ago. I was blown away by the cover art, that kind of indelible image of Santa going down the chimney and that arm sticking out with the axe in its hand really stuck to me. And uh, it's a awesome. film that I have two or three, maybe even four different versions of just recently added to that with the new one that's out from 101 Films, the box set of Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 and 2. By the way, it was that one that I watched tonight. I love this film. We've done a few of these kind of festive, slashery films. I know we've done Christmas Evil and we've talked about a few other things that kind of nudge up against it. I think this is infinitely more fun than Christmas Evil. Yeah, I mean, I've had dental procedures that are more fun than Christmas Evil. But, like, (laughs) um, uh, this was a first watch for me, Carl. I have... This is one of those ones that people have been talking about for ages about um, that they think we should do and that they think we should do Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 as well. So I knew that it was a kind of festive slasher and kind of didn't let myself find out any more about it beyond that until I watched it. And my first viewing of it concluded something like 20 minutes ago. Mitch, I'm surprised by that, actually, because I am sure, absolutely certain, that we watched this together. 100% no. I would have remembered. Trust me, I would have remembered. There's there's too much memorable stuff and too many memorable images for me to have forgotten about that, regardless okay. of how much wine you would have played me with. Okay. Um, I did an IMDb on it tonight and found out that in 2017, there was a documentary, uh, Sleigh Bells Ring, the story of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And I would love to have seen that before I watched this. It might have given a bit more insight. Have, have, have you seen that, Andy? I haven't actually seen that. I think it could have shed a little bit more light, but um, I think we'll come up with some um, I think we'll come up with some interesting observations regardless. It, well, I guess we're on our own. I don't want any light shed on this. I'm happy with it being as oblique and weird as it is. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Carl, before we begin, uh, you said that you've listened to the podcast a little bit before. You may know what's coming. We do make everyone that comes on do this. Uh, For the benefit of anyone that has not seen Silent Night, Deadly Night that's listening, uh, how would you feel about being counted in and uh, tasked with a 30-second synopsis of this film? Oh, right. Okay, I didn't know this bit, but yeah, go for it. The uh, the calamity will be worth it. (laughs) Okay, Andy, we've got 30 seconds of the clock. I do, and Carl, if it makes you feel any better, you're going to be hard-pushed to be the worst that we've ever had. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully no one's seen it, so it won't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Silent Night, Deadly Night is about Billy, who, when he's a little child, experiences his mum and dad killed by a rogue Santa Claus. 
And then we join him when he's 18 years old to see if he can make a life of himself, get a nice new job and a lovely girlfriend. It's a family drama. It's full of love and cheer and really encapsulates the Christmas spirit. Lovely, lovely. That was that was um, a perfect piece of scene setting and most of all accurate. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you did lay it out in a way that felt written, but if it was improvised, I'd off my hat to you, really, because it, lo- it was quite lovely. It, it, was, it, was, it was super improvised. Yes, well, I left out the horror because um, let me ask you both a question. Oh, okay, please. Do you think the humour is intentional? Certain parts yeah. of it. Yeah, I think I might need to go case by case on this. I think that some of the humour that lands uh, is played that way and some of it isn't. That's exactly it. That's, that would be my point. This is not written and directed by the same person. Obviously, the person that wrote it didn't direct it. And I think that comes across. I think, you know, is it um, director Charles E. Sellier directed it? And I just wonder whether either something was lost in translation or whether he was just like, okay, this bit's going to be funny. But then there was no rules on whether that, you know, he was going to continue that humor throughout. It was, it's, it's, yeah, I I was struggling to know. (laughs) Now I, I don't know whether this is meant to be funny or not, but that kind of added to the enjoyment of it, I think. I think to add an extra level, of weird onto that though any scenes involving gore were shot by the editor because Charles E. Sellier Jr. didn't like being around gore or gore effects or (laughs) any unpleasantness so I think in his mind he was just watching a guy dressed as Santa just walking around the streets like if he was listening Carl he'd have heard your synopsis and be like that guy nailed it yeah he didn't see any of the other shit coming (laughs) That's that's amazing, and I, I I don't know whether this is just in the copy that I watched, but did you also notice that some, particularly the extreme guy, looked like it had been cut and then reinserted back into the film? Because the version mm. I watched, every time it cut to a close-up of somebody getting cut, it was all yellow and it looked like it had been picked up off a floor after somebody had walked yeah. across it and reinserted back into the film. This film was uh, chopped pretty harshly when it came out. Finally, like, I think uh, it got down to... I mean, it's not a long film anyway. I think it's about an hour and 22, something 84. like that. Yeah, but it got chopped minutes, yeah. way down to somewhere in the region of 70 minutes previously, I think. Jesus. Carl, to your point there, I mean, I did notice that as well. Um, I don't know what you were watching. I was watching just the, the one that was rentable on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I did notice that. I thought that there was some kind of... and I, And... T- just for clarity, yeah, I never notice things like that. Mm. So before I'm catching it, it must be obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I did. I did spot that as well. So it, it, it was so bad. It was like it was the rushes. It was like they they didn't have the 35 mil like pristine print to reinsert and and somebody said oh we've got this crap it's been <laughs> it's been telecined onto eight mil and then you know gone down four generations on beta camp it's fine just shove it back yeah. in people want the go it's so, like that so, cabal cut of nightbreed i don't know if anyone's ever seen that but it's like all the stuff that you've seen from nightbreed previously and then they they literally found a tape down the back of some shelves in clive barker's house <laughs> And they inserted footage from this tape back into the film, and the quality difference is staggering. Like, I think it must be incredibly difficult to watch something like that and have it 
flow cohesively as a narrative in your brain when that happens. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I think for us, like looking at something like that after the fact, it kind of adds to its charm because then you know that this film is, you know, it sort of gives it a history, doesn't it? Because you know it was probably submitted like that, the BBFC or whoever chopped it. And this is, if I remember, yeah, this is in 1984. Yeah. I don't know how old you guys are, but this that was the same year that the Videos Recording Act came out in the Absolutely. UK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they that where they took all those video nasties and just cut everything to fuck and um this you know then it's reinserted years later in like a i don't know a a 2000 release cut or something Mm -hmm. um so for us watching it it's kind of like oh yeah i remember when films were cut so for us it's probably nice but i'm sure the original directors watching it just you know stands out like a sore thumb to them i've got to say i don't know if this is the kind of film that charles e sellier jr is going to go back to particularly often given that it destroyed his career he was unemployable after this and gave up filmmaking really yeah he wound up producing but as far as being a a director nope well when Siskel and Ebert have read your name out on tv and tried to shame you and said they said something along the lines of you should you know you shouldn't allow these people to work in the industry again I mean, it was terrible to 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 do that because mm. they didn't like the movie. But but from their point of view, it was like, oh, there's a there's a piece. I mean, obviously we'll go through the film and get to it. But there's a piece where you know that Santa hands a little girl a bloody knife, <laughs> and they were saying this is disgusting. This is you know how dare you show this stuff? And it's, I I, I mean, I can't imagine this was the worst video nasty of the time. I'm God, really no. quite no, not, no, not even that close. They had an issue with this. Uh, this film lasted two weeks in the cinema before it was pulled and it was on course to make like somewhere in the region of 20 million dollars they kind of supposed that that was going to be the kind of final box office which at the time is absolutely enormous but the group of parents that were largely responsible for getting it pulled were called citizens against movie madness (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ man honestly how much of a small existence does that point to that's tragic to my mind it's the same as people bumming rap albums yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's never made any. It's never made any sense to me. I mean, you know, the correlation between video watching violence and and actually, very interestingly, this is the thing that I I take issue with with this film the most. What it's saying is, if you watch murder as a child, you'll become a murderer. And and this is kind of it goes on throughout the film. And sure. even the last shot of the film is one kid that watches it. And and weirdly, this was the. This was the rhetoric that they were using to ban these films in the first place. Yeah. So in my notes here, I've written, it must be going down in cinematic history as the only film campaigning for its own erasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre <laughs> point of view for a horror film to take. That's, that's really remarkable. I hadn't considered that at all. Yeah. We start off with the uh, with an opening nursery rhyme, mm. some Christmas tune that I haven't heard of. And my first <laughs> thought was, why aren't they singing in Silent Night, Deadly Night? And that was my first clue to it wasn't meant to be a comedy. Sure. I thought they should be singing Silent Night, Deadly Night with these choir kids. So we, yeah, we start off with that and the lovely font um, comes up. And we're introduced to Billy in the back of the car. Very excited about Santa. Any notion that this film is fun, You'll you'll be hard pressed to find the fun, I would say, in the first fifteen minutes of this film because it's fucking horrible. So incredibly bleak, isn't it? It's it's super bleak. Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy one, is where we join our uh, when we join our action, and we've got Billy and uh, his younger brother, whose name escapes me. I want to say Ricky. Ricky, yeah, played here by um, a girl baby. Lovely, yeah. 
they are on their way to Grandpa's for Christmas, which we come to learn is the Utah Mental Facility. I pissed. Let's see, that pissed myself when I saw that. And actually, because I just glanced at the screen, I thought it said on first looking, look, the Mental Facility was what I thought it said. Sure. I thought, wow, just get straight to the point. But then it was Utah Mental Facility. I thought mm, a little bit better, but probably still not on the money. But yeah, that's that's the level we go. We go straight in. It's pulling no punches, is it? Mm. I actually think that the broad and empty wasteland that is Utah, as it is presented in the kind of early running of this film, is the least festive thing I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like the the entire way that the scene set is festive as a 40-foot-high stack of reindeer carcasses, really, isn't it? It paints Christmas all the way through. As a, just depre- I mean, everyone that you see is like fat and depressed. It's the it's the most bleakest view of Christmas that I've ever seen, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I really like it. Mm. Um, <laughs> when we first come into this, I don't know what you thought, but when we first go into the inside of the mental facility, it looks like a comatose Bill Murray from Zombieland. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I see that definitely. Um, also, apparently, the only kind of inmate here. Yes, that's right. And he's also, I, I couldn't quite figure it out, but I got the impression that he'd just been pretending to have dementia for maybe 20 years just so that he could scare his grandson. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> like, I also like the idea of like him... He's been sat there the entire time. It's bizarre. I, I quite like the idea of him pretending that he has dementia so that he gets bed baths, he gets fed, he gets lovely kind of oat slurry for his dinner. Um, I I quite like the idea of it just being a long form con, like it's just like twenty like twenty years worth just building to this one moment where he could freak out the kid, because he really does. The minute that they're left alone, um, he starts not just talking about the fact that Santa only brings presents to good children, which we're all very familiar with, but he does explore the other side of that coin, which is Santa punishes bad children. Yes, yes, our theme comes to the fore straight away. But I also thought there was a hint of comedy here because. I think it's the mother says, um, oh, you know, Billy, granddad doesn't know you're here. And Billy says, so why did we come? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I pissed myself and I'm like, this is kind of funny. And and the idea that his own granddad would just pretend to have dementia so he could freak his own grandson out was um, awesome. But it it was like, I was confused by the tone straight away. Like, this is funny, but it's not. The minute he did it, I was like, what's he driving at here? Like, because because I mean, like, because it is funny when he does it, but I was like, what's the real world explanation for what brought us to this point? I'm quite a fan of the the Mm. notion that perhaps he might have been quite happy to see his family and his grandson maybe 11 or 12 months ago and that visit never transpired so he has now taken it upon himself to exaggerate the symptoms that he's experiencing all these dementia and uh, punish them by being an absolute bastard <laughs> one year in the I making like that. yeah i like that yeah it's a, it's a it's he's really committed to his grudge <laughs> my kind of guy yeah, like they didn't visit last Christmas, and he's like, I'll fucking show them this year. Um, while all this is going on, a nearby gas station is robbed by a guy in a Santa suit. These two paths cross in fairly bloody fashion immediately after this. Again, like you said, I mean, like th- this is this is really fucking heavy and really, really depressing. Yes. Uh, Billy's diminishing opinion of Santa Claus done no favors here as he sees both of his parents killed in uh, cold blood by him. Yeah, this was the moment where I was like, oh, this isn't a horror comedy that I remembered it being. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was, it was one of the, because all the way up to this point, I was thinking, oh yeah, it's a comedy horror. I can see just little bits in there. He's the pepper 
covering it with a bit of humor. And then that scene comes on. I'm like, oh, this is traumatic. No, <laughs> this isn't funny at all. <laughs> After this, the first of two chronology hops, uh, we jump ahead uh, three years to uh, the similarly bluntly entitled St. Mary's Home for Orphaned Children. Sure. Yes. Billy, a troubled kid, understandably, but uh, this administration not particularly receptive to that, uh, quite, particularly uh, Mother Superior. Quite the mullet that he's sporting now as well, I have to say. That's how you know. That's how you know. That's how you know he's seen some things. That's how you know that child's troubled if their hair's long at the back. It's yep. come out in his hair, the trauma. His hair does resemble, <laughs> it has a kind of Frankenstein-y head shape. Like, it resembles the guy, the zombie that gets his head chopped off with a helicopter in Dawn of the Dead. That's a bit of a, a niche reference there, but uh, a zombie <laughs> notorious for his flat head. Yes, no, I know the one. So, Carl, do you think that his mullet is his body ejecting the trauma? <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's it's part of him. It's growing. It's growing out. I mean, um, when you see him later, he still has a mullet, doesn't he? Um, well, he looks a bit like a gay porn actor when we see him. Uh, we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead. But yeah, his That's hairstyle fine. doesn't get any better. Let's put it that way. I think his no. arse is um, too hairy to be a gay porn actor because when we see him later, when he's having a fantasy about having sex with <laughs> Pamela that he works with, he has an extremely hairy arse and perineum. <laughs> Yes, he didn't shave for the part. I'll, I'll perform all the wanton acts of violence that you want, but I am not taking a razor anywhere near that thing. <laughs> Razors are for throats, not for asses. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I feel like Billy gets a bit of an, an unduly rough time uh, in in the orphanage uh, mm. when he tries. Like, so he gets banished to his room, and I think that that's extremely unfair. Well, he does superior. draw a horrible picture of Santa. You know, yes, I mean, like, that's like, right. That would probably be my iteration of Santa Claus as well if I'd seen the things he'd seen. Sure. By the way, I've got to talk about Mother Superior just but quickly. But this is where we, we again. I want to kind of ask you guys what your opinion was here, but they set up to be you know a total bitch mm. you know, her, her her methods are lashing him with a belt sure and literally there's you know we'll talk about it soon but a trial by fire and so they set her up as a character that you know you want to see her get killed but she never gets her comeuppance and this is this is what i was trying to say earlier is that it's almost like the film saying she was right all along like you know if you do bad stuff you should be punished and it's and it's also saying that sex is bad in the film as well so this is why i think it's got a bit of a weird republican right-wing stance to it sure, because it's so almost saying that yes yeah, sex is bad and you will be killed for all these people that are apparently punished for their acts are just people that have had sex and yet she gets away scot-free and for all this horrendous like draconian moralizing that she's doing those are yeah, women yeah where Billy peeks through a, a, a keyhole and sees two people fucking. Now, I can only imagine that the guy who's doing the, the fucking there is not a man of the cloth. I uh, can only imagine that he has kind of taken it upon himself to presumably have sex with a nun. But even then, you don't expect the door to be bust open and to be beaten with a bell. No, she's uh, she's she's got questionable counselling methods, I would say. I think that, that I think that that's fair. Oh, yeah, like I mean, like this is kind of crossing over into just straight up assault at this point. I would say. <laughs> I also think that it's a little bit 
unfair, given that um, St. Mary's Home for Orphan Children obviously are very conversant with Billy's troubled backstory, mm-hmm. that he is literally frog-marched into the room with Santa and forced to sit on his lap. This ends up with Santa being punched in the face. I think this entire exchange, the person that I sympathise the hardest with is possibly the unwitting Santa. Mm. That young boy punches Santa with the force of a thousand men because he he's a small boy and he launches that grown man across the room. Yeah, that was, I mean, I don't know about you, that I laughed out loud at that bit. Oh, I for thought sure. that was maybe meant to be really funny, that bit. But yeah, it's right. It's like they, they, this mother superior, not only does she lash those people with the belt, she then says to him that it was naughty that he left his room. She says to Billy, you know, it's naughty you've left your room. And then she whips him as well. And then she grabs him in the following scene and says, right, I'll show you fucking Santa. And frog marches him into Santa's lap. And it's like, this this woman is like Hitler. And, mm. and the director does not kill her off at the end. And to me, that's saying, oh, she's right. No, she had she was totally on the ball. I'm I'm with her all along. And that's what I find odd. It is interesting, yeah, because like, because she's she's awful. Like, what's it like? What she does to this kid basically is kind of tantamount to psychological warfare. And the film, and it is weird <laughs> that the film denies you the catharsis of her seeing yeah. chopped in half at the end of it. Also, she ties a child to the bed for having a nightmare. God, this, God, this is a fucking grim one, isn't it? Like, just like it's like, I mean, I like, I think it widens out into more conventionally fun slasher territory as it goes on. But the first act of this is fucking heavy going. Mm, I hate that. Yeah, woman. it's really heavy and. You're trying to think of, okay, what's the, you know, I mean, you know, you go along for the fun as well, but I'm also thinking, well, what's the film trying to say to me? And at this point, I'm thinking, she's going to get bloody ripped in half, this woman. Like, we're going to get the goriest death of the movie is going to be saved for the nun. And they kind of work it up that way. That Mm -hmm. the climax of the film is going to be Santa attacking her. And for it to deny you that, it, it questions what the writer's motives are, in my opinion, anyway. <laughs> Very interesting. Another chronology hop at this point, 10 years into the future, um, the sisters, specifically Sister Margaret, who has always been the more sympathetic sure. um, of, the, uh, of the staff that we met, she gets Billy a job. I'm now trying to do the maths on how old Billy's supposed to be because he looks like in his late 20s. And he's 18. Uh, and he's 18. <laughs> I mean... Another 80s staple, I guess. Yeah. But this is at Ira's Toy Shop. Just want to say for the record, I'm currently wearing an Ira's Toy Shop t-shirt. Get nice. in the groove. Nice. Nice. So they reluctantly give Billy a job, or at least they're reluctant to give him a job until they get a look at him, and then they realise that he'll probably be pretty handy in a kind of storesman or warehouse job. I really like the um, the kind of stately 80s pop song that plays during the montage of Billy ingratiating himself with the warehouse staff and kind of like being a good worker. It sounds very much like a kind of like, um, an, like a very charming, homely 80s sitcom theme. Did you not get the impression that Mr. Sims, uh, I don't know if his first name is Ira, if he is the titular Ira of the store, but did you not get the impression that a lot of Mr. Sims' decision-making and praise of Billy in the early running is kind of predicated on the fact that Billy's blonde and hot? Because it seems like we get a real kind of creepy, gazy first introduction to adult Billy. And then there's a few moments where Billy's working in the store, like... He seems to be forever stacking Jabba the Hutt figures. But there's a moment where I'm pretty sure that Mr. Sims has a right good look at his ass. <laughs> it's this, this is where I have to say I was really tonally confused. Because when that montage starts, it isn't... I think we need to clarify this. This isn't just an average 80s montage. This could have been out of different strokes or <laughs> the cosby show it is cheesy as fuck it's like it's like they just put a coca-cola ad in the middle 
of a horror movie. And it's it, to me, it just it stood out so much that I'm like, I just thought at that point it was like, this is a complete tonal mess. Mm-hmm. The boss gives him a cheesy nod, the type of thing that you would see turned into a meme on the internet and co-workers <laughs> offer him alcohol. But no, I'm fine. I've got milk. Because yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. sure, sure. drinking is also bad in this movie. <laughs> well, uh... Drinking and sex is bad. And it plays like, like a daytime TV soap opera. It's, it's, mm. it's pretty horrendous. And I don't think it's intentionally funny, even though I, I laughed all the way through it. I completely agree. By the way, um, any would-be collectors out there, the song we're hearing there is The Warm Side of the Door by Morgan Ames. Wow, thanks much for that. Well done. Yeah, um, but that that little guy that we, we start to see a bit more of in the shop there, the first of two Andys in this film that really bring down the good name of Andys everywhere, except for Prince Andrew, because he's he's not great either. Yeah, this, <laughs> this guy, he's a little, he's a little asshole as well. Like, it seems like basically Billy's entire life is just fending off absolute pricks. Uh, and this little guy's no different. No, and, and the, the odd thing is in the montage, he's nothing but nice to him. Hmm. They look like the best of friends. And then about 3.8 seconds after the montage finishing, he's like, you know, I fucking hate you. You're so fucking useless. And you're like, whoa, that's a bit of a spinning 180. I mean, the guy, Billy's done nothing wrong. And suddenly this guy's got a massive attitude problem with him. He's not offering him his alcohol anymore. Mm. Um, that, that gave me a little bit of a whiplash. And it's at this point that um, he gets those Vietnam flashbacks, doesn't he? And sure. um, Mm-hmm. sort of falls over and and then gets helped up by the girlfriend that he fancies. That's right, Pamela. Um, Pamela at one point, yeah. Andy calls him a moon goon, which I think is pretty rough, considering everybody pretty much knows that this guy's got a kind of troubled past in terms of his mental history and the fact that he's been brought up in a, an orphanage by nuns. It just seems like quite a harsh thing to call him. Yeah, so I think that... Well, well I guess what we have next is the scene where we think that uh, Billy's having sex with Pamela, but then it turns into a Christmas murder dream where she's mm. killed by a knife-wielding Santa. In case you didn't know that he hates Santa. Yeah, so this is is this where he finally flips? I, I mean, he's having these dreams where the girl that he, that he fancies has been murdered by Santa. Right, that's fine. We know this already. But the real tipping point for him is when we learn that one of the employees has picked up an injury and... There's no male temporary workers at any employment agency in town. So the only person who is available to play Santa is the guy who is demonstrably terrified of Santa. <laughs> it's perfect. I, I do. And again, it's the com- the comedy element there. It's like, I mean, it's pretty dark comedy, but it seems quite obvious to me. You know, that's what you you know you would do. And he, 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 he freaks out, doesn't he? Well, you would do. You would freak out. Like if this to me is exactly the same as the moment that nun forces him onto Santa's lap. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, he has a real, very quick flashback of his parents being killed again, doesn't he? And then um, falls back into some empty boxes, <laughs> and then he gets picked up by Pamela and um, <laughs> some, some obviously yeah, a nice tender moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's really funny when you see him being the department store Santa. Sure. And so he's, but he's only as good as the information that's in front of him about Santa. So uh, he just relays all the scary shit that his granddad told him years ago. And I think it's really funny that, like, you see him sitting, and he's obviously like, I actually, I really like the scene where he's got the girl in his lap, and he obviously just has no idea what he's doing. And he obviously gets it massively wrong, but you can also tell that he's just doing his best with what he knows. 
And I think that that's quite interesting. Yeah. But what I think is funny is that um, afterwards, the wee girl gets off his lap, <laughs> immediately like runs screaming to her mom, grabs her, and doesn't look around again, and is just like, "Oh God, he's so great with kids, isn't he?" Yeah, <laughs> he sure. Yeah, he sure knows how to handle kids. Is what she says, yeah. and it's like, "Oh, okay, now it's funny again." Yeah. yeah. By the way, this is a toy shop, and her present is a candy cane. What a fucking jip! Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> Yeah. Although, to be fair, it does, it's not really a toy shop, is it? I love how all the windows are kind of... <laughs> they've just frosted them all out because it's clearly just some warehouse that they've got access to and they don't want to see you outside. There's a scene a little bit later where there's a woman that, that runs to the exit to try and get away and she's got an axe in her hand. That's and you're right. like, don't smash the windows because you'll see the edge of the set. So she just kind of, you know, spins around in a circle for a while before she gets <laughs> because they can't afford to smash the window and see that there is no outside. It, it smacks to me of one of those kind of you know those kind of outlet stores that they, that pops up just seasonally in the remnants of a previously good shop. I like a pop up. There's a decided spartanness to the shelves there. They're not they're not filled in such a way where you can believe that this is a toy shop. Aye, or that it's built for longevity. Yeah. <laughs> No, it looks like a Tesco Extra, um, <laughs> like at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even when it's open, it's just there's some there's something ghost town about that store. Yeah, I mean, like, I, like I, I'm not here to I'm not here to poke holes in the authenticity of the piece, but that <laughs> that like like that does not have me believing for a second that that's a toy shop. <laughs> Yeah, so it's now it's now at this point after after we see that he really knows how to handle kids, that the nun <laughs> finds out he has got a job as a Santa, and she's all like, <gasps> and Billy then has his first drink, and so now it's a combination of alcohol being a trigger for his violence, yep, and his colleagues encourage that. And yeah, I, I don't know whether I should be taking this message seriously now, or is it ridiculing the oversimplistic rationale for what ends up making him a killer but it's like it's either it's not just the alcohol that makes him a killer and it's not just the sex it's like sex and alcohol turn him into a killer um and this is why i think the message is ultimately super problematic because it's exactly what they were sort of saying about the the video nasties like you know if you watch this stuff it will influence kids they'll go on and become disturbed and this is exactly what happens to billy and and it's, it's like they're making that kind of the c- comparison but they're also at the same time showing you gratuitous titty shots mm. when he's grabbing hold of it so it's not it's not moralizing to the point of say it's still saying oh yeah we're a horror film and we know you want tits and gore and so we're still going to give you that at the same time yeah and, and that's why i think it, it ends up in this really sort of almost it's cancelled itself out space it's odd yeah um because because i don't i don't think for a second that this is setting out to satirize that mentality at all like i don't like i don't th- like like at no point do i think that that's what it's doing um so it is kind of trying to have its cake and eat it too in that way isn't it yeah, yeah because if it isn't satirizing it then it's saying that this is the truth that yeah this, that it's endorsing this, it yeah 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 but at the same time it's just showing you close-ups of people getting um impaled and tits <laughs> so sure. it's it's like what are you i don't know what you are tell me <laughs> i've got to say i'm not sad to see the back of andy here because he displays some problematic behaviors and, and then you have that question about how much of this is down to the fact that he is kind of attempting a similar assault on pamela that billy has witnessed in the past and how much is it just that uh, billy's kind of jealousy but billy displays remarkable 
strength here. No doubt spurred on by the power of Christmas. And <laughs> not only chokes Andy out with Christmas lights, but elevates him easily with one hand. Yeah, this is um, this is just like straight up und- uh, like Undertaker like choke slam caliber behavior. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then I can only yeah. imagine that this the- is the first time I also noticed the the first time I saw the yellow film reinserted back into the edit here. Oh really? So this felt like it was the the. the- I think, yeah, for me, this was the first scene I noticed where the gore had been uh, inserted into the movie. But yeah, you're right. There's some rapey talk from that guy um, before he drags her into the to, into the back room. So you think, and and again, it's an odd thing because you think, oh great, you're, it's like three cheers for Billy because he comes to the rescue and he kills Andy, but mm. then he loses control and then ends up killing the woman. And I will give this props for being perhaps the only film that I've ever seen that now no longer has a protagonist. Our protagonist has become the antagonist Mm. at this moment, and there is no way back for him. There is no... Billy is now dead and gone. There's no resurrecting Billy. There is only Killer Santa. And now we've got absolutely (laughs) nobody in the film to root for at all. There is no protagonist anymore. Yeah, it's hard at this point to imagine a redemptive arc for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, There's no way back from this. I completely agree. And like, Carl, to your point, I I had this written down as well. Like, because basically to begin with, I was like, A++ vigilante behavior. He's intervened and stopped the sexual assault here. Fair play. And then like literally in the next breath, he uh, chokes Pamela and then slices her down the middle. And I was like, ah, maybe going to retract the point I'd awarded him for for that. (laughs) But it's odd now that I kind of didn't know who he was rooting for. Because I think the first time I watched it, I was sort of on his side a little bit. He's been through all this crap. The nuns are treating him like shit. These, you know, his his colleagues are treating him like shit. And now he becomes the bad guy. Mm. It, yeah, it, it's kind of it, it sort of it, it sidesweeps you a little bit. It's like I I, I don't uh, yeah. I just, like I said, there's nobody left to root for in this film, apart from him. So you sort of feel like, well, if we're supposed to be on his side then at least we want to see the nun get killed. So that was the, that was the only thing left that I thought that how it could redeem itself in terms of having a story arc that made any sense. I think as well that, I mean, this, this film gear shifts remarkably quickly because Mr. Sims is uh, immediately gone as well via a large hammer to the head. Sure. <laughs> Similarly also, uh, the person I had simply written down as co-worker. Now, I've got her written down as Helen slash Ellen because I wasn't entirely sure and I didn't ah, check. okay. Okay, you're one up on me. Um, I, I I didn't catch a name, um, but she's dispatched pretty promptly as well. And yeah, we're kind of like we're kind of like getting towards the end of kind of second act territory here. And at this point, there is no looking back. That's right. <laughs> is this the woman that gets killed with the bow and arrow? Yes. Okay, that was wicked because what fucking kid's toy shop is selling a real bow and arrow? <laughs> it's like surely it should have a rubber stop on the end of it or a sucker, but he no, he just picks it up off the shelf and just impales him with it. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, it's like Toys R Us just selling like straight up murder weapons. Yeah. I would even wager that it's more dangerous and more interesting from a filmmaker perspective to have Billy reach one of those suckery arrows that we've just discussed there up to his mouth and pull the sucker off and then use just an aggressive plastic tube to fire into someone. <laughs> it, that feels more dangerous to me and a better visual. Who could down for that? At this point, obviously, I thought what this third act needs is the re-injection of a kindly nun. Fortunately, here one comes. Mm. Uh, Sister Margaret is back um, and kind of very much she's, like, like you said, Carl, earlier on, she caught wind of the fact that um, uh, Billy had had a very unfortunate promotion at Iris Toys. 
So she's back and ready to intervene. However, Billy is off out for some broader killing. And uh, the first victims we run into are more horny middle-aged teenagers. <laughs> I have a question about uh, this guy's like sexy chat. I don't know about you guys. That's, that's one of my little pet hates when they when they do things like that nobody has sex on a pool table they're in a house there's a bed there's a really comfy bed upstairs at the very least there's a sofa Mm -hmm. but they're like no no we're going to do it on this really uncomfortable pool table it's going to scratch you back to fuck they both deserve it yeah green bays is no substitute even for a a a rug with a nice deep shag agreed (laughs) no By the way, Mitch, sorry to interrupt you. The wonderful Linnea Quigley here. Of course, yeah. But these have to die too now for having sex, right? Because we've established this. Uh, yes. Sex, um, sex is bad. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that, like, just before he arrives, when he's, like, trying to up the ante, like, sexually, when he puts on his, like, his what is obviously his, like, sex mixtape, which is, like, 80s funk pop. But then he says, as a kind of, like simultaneous snooker pun and a kind of sex joke he says two ball in the corner pocket and i was like does he think that you put the balls in (laughs) (laughs) you mean you don't mitch (laughs) you'll do it all wrong the balls um, go in the bum as the old saying goes fucking hell yeah like you said carly but like there's a there's a hunt and chase sequence going on here that is kind of that kind of drives the point home just how precisely steeped in slasher tropes what we're watching is mm. i think it's interesting as well that uh, linea quigley's character decides to leave the the kind of confines of the the sex basement and go to get the cat and bring the cat into a house that she doesn't own like she's a, she's a babysitter there and she goes to get this cat and no top and stands at the door with no top on for quite a long time. In the snow. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's that was I, I thought that was um was 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 quite hilarious that bit. But yeah, then she, so it's her turn to get killed. And I am I right in saying you think that all the women's deaths appear to be much more gratuitous than the men yes. that are killed in this film? A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I would say certainly in about ninety percent of cases that's true. This one was as easily the most gratuitous in the entire film and it was also the one that kinda incurred and invoked the most ire because she's killed by Santa and impaled pretty gratuitously onto the horns of a deer head. And uh, yeah, the, the horns emerge through her breasts and it's uh, it's quite the tableau. Yeah, and it's a real close-up shot as well. And and um, in contrast, the bloke just kind of gets kicked out of the window, doesn't he? <laughs> and then he's yeah. just found on the lawn with a bit of glass in him. But it, he, he certainly gets off uh, much more lightly than she does. It's still pretty I- cool. Yeah, it, it is quite cool. I mean, but you you are right though. I mean, like yeah, like the, the actual kind of machinations of the death you see it in this exhaustive, painful surgical close up when it's Linnea Quigley's character, and then yeah, the guy you just see him get thrown at the window. That you get like you get a decent look at him with the glass in his face afterwards. Sure. But yeah, like in terms of the actual process of how he actually goes down, it's uh, it's absolute night and day. Yes, it's like an afterwards glory shot, and then we we get to the point in the film which is, I guess, I think. But maybe one of the most famous moments where the girl comes back up mm. from the sex basement or wherever she's been, the, the, the little girl, and then um, he asks her if she's been naughty or nice. And um, she's been nice, and so as a reward, he gives her a bloody knife. Ah, yes, <laughs> for, yes. For the, a present. The evergreen gift of a blood-soaked knife. <laughs> what do you give the little girl yes, that has I'm everything? The- <laughs> 
and, and, I, and again, I, I pissed myself when I watched it. But then again, just sort of looking at the message of that, it's like there's definitely a message of violence being passed down onto kids through sure. traumatic events. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's literally handed the knife to her. And so now is she going to become a killer? It's like, is evil contagious? You know, don't let it near them. And it's... Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a bit of a confused message, but at least they're sort of consistent with it. They they run that thing throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's like it's a little bit. But now two cops turn come. up who we've never seen before. We actually meet quite a lot of characters at this point that we've never met before. Uh, first and foremost, yeah, the two the two cops that are on Billy's tail who accidentally interrupt a family Christmas. Yeah, I think being tasked with hunting down Santa at Christmas can't be easy for anyone. No, no, I'm certainly not blaming them or calling them incompetent for um uh, for for calling this wrong. Also not the last time in this film that someone will make that mistake. Very true, yeah. Also, we meet a couple of bullies here. Oh, is this uh, are we are we into the are we into the famous sled sequence? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, yeah, the yeah. very same. Yeah, so we meet four characters at once here. Um the two kind of kids on the sled and the two bullies who will eventually take the sleds. Bob and Mac. I love that you noted their names like they have any importance whatsoever. <laughs> 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 yeah, when they when they appeared, I was like, these guys are obviously in it for the long haul. I'm going to make a point of learning their names. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, it's but again, it runs the theme through because they do something naughty. They nick the sled mm-hmm. off the other two guys that don't mean anything, and they walk off and we never see them again. So it <laughs> takes two unlikable characters that we want to see killed, and then they get killed in a really comic way. One comes down without his head, <laughs> so he, go, he goes down the sled like yeah and then by the time he gets to the bottom he's got no head and the, the, the head comes rolling down and this this i mean you tell me what you think but that's hilarious and surely that's intentional that's that's not meant to be traumatic at all mm. yeah that's played for laughs it's got to be yeah yeah 100%. i have to say I, these these are grown men they have no business stealing the sleds of children <laughs> <laughs> And, and the thing, the thing that I noted about this scene is that it's hilarious that when the best scene of your film could have been cut without any consequence to the plot, <laughs> then you know you're in trouble. <laughs> that's a that's a fair point. I did say that um, the fact that this decapitation was so easy to see coming made it absolutely no less satisfying when it happened. Sure, absolutely, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Make, probably makes it better actually. Yeah, it's pretty rewarding. Sister Margaret has become very invested in how all this is going. She discovers to her horror at the police station that there have been three more murders. At this point, we're starting to pull in towards where the final standoff for this is going to take place. We're going back to uh, the home where Mother Superior, presumably now 100 years old, is still running it. 100 years old, but no less a cunt. Yeah, hard agree. The police are all over this as well at this point. They have called him the Santa Claus killer, which is misleading because he hasn't killed any Santas. (laughs) (laughs) He's killed the spirit and the image of Santa for children everywhere. Um, Well, yes, that's true. It's the metaphorical Santa killer. (laughs) Exactly. But yes, Andy, as you said, our second case of mistaken uh, Santa identity happens here under considerably more tragic circumstances as a a altruistically intentioned deaf priest in a Santa suit (laughs) is riddled with bullets in the forecourt of an orphanage. I'm glad you remembered to mention the fact that he is a deaf priest and that's why you couldn't hear the police telling him to stop. Like, it's, it's such a bad thing to add into it. It's just... 
it's just wonderful. It's like, why didn't he answer you? Why didn't he throw his gun down? Why didn't he lie on the ground? Yeah, it's uh, and they they say that he's uh, he's Father Brian, and we feel really bad about him because we've never ever seen him or he's ever been mentioned in the film up to this point. So. Um, <laughs> Our sympathies are really with him. Uh, but one thing I did notice about this is that all the kids are witness to this act. They all see the Santa get killed. And so if we take the, the film at face value of what it's trying to say about, you know, Billy end up being a killer, there should actually be about 20 Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels where each one of those kids turns into a Santa killer. Yeah, yeah. Some of those children are actually showered in the blood of Santa, which is deeply horrifying. I don't want to get too spoilery, but none of these kids are going to have a Merry Christmas ever in life because they see two different iterations of Santa Claus get riddled with bullets in the space of about a quarter of an hour here. <laughs> they are knackered. Yeah. To feed back in briefly to Mother Superior's general country, she's obviously furious about the fact that good-natured sweet father Brian, who obviously over the measure of this film we have come to know and love, and we now know that he's been cut down in his prime, she's like, I don't understand what the problem was. And it's like she's basically like kind of chastising them for confusing a killer dressed as Santa with a man dressed as Santa. <laughs> From a distance. Yeah, she's just like talking about this glaring act of incompetence. It's like they know that there is a killer on the loose who is dressed as Santa in the area, like within a couple of miles radius of this children's home. And they get there and find a guy in a Santa suit advancing on a courtyard full of children. And they go shoot first, ask questions later when he doesn't respond to their request to cease and desist. I think that they get a rough ride from her here. I think I probably would have done the same thing. By the way, that's actually the orders that come down from high from the police it's basically just uh, shoot to kill kill all santas massacre joy <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised mother superior had anything to say about that because in the in the following scene when they're like okay so you know kill a santa's on its way mother you've got to make sure you protect the kids and she's like yeah okay so then she sits there with her back to the door mm -hmm. singing with all the kids and one of them gets up and goes and open the door and she's just like oh sit down but she can't be asked getting up and doing anything about it she's in a wheelchair Carl. <laughs> <laughs> it moves <laughs> lazy she's... bastard never gets <laughs> off her ass yeah she could have she could have done a 360 span round to the door but now she, <laughs> she's, she's not happy. an olympic basketball player she's not one of those like paralympians that, that can do 360s in a wheelchair she's an old woman mitch already said she's a hundred years old listen all i'm saying is i think she's a lazy bitch okay that's all i'm saying the most unbelievable thing about this entire sequence is the thought that for a minute you would require a pitch pipe in order to sing christmas carols with children christmas carols by their very nature are best when they're sang off key no one goes to a school band recital and expects them to be in tune i'm sorry i'm still reeling from that last exchange apologies much i'm back now <laughs> Oh, fuck. Here we go. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I'm back now. It's okay. We're almost at the end. We're almost there, guys. We're almost right. at the at the real anticlimactic ending that we've all been building up to. By the way, yeah. that kid that opens the door is the second Andy in this film that is an absolute prick. What's he do? What's his, what's his crime? He opens the door and uh, lets Killer Santa into the, into the, the fold, as it were. Ah, okay, okay. Um, to be fair, I don't know whether, whether, whether uh, Superior actually tells them Maybe she, she keeps that information from him. So maybe Andy isn't to blame. He's just yeah. like, oh, it's Santa. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, that we're, I think that we're holding this child to a very high standard of accountability. Just saying, it reflects poorly on us all. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter if you're in a bloody wheelchair. If somebody says there's a killer Santa coming to kill all your kids and she just sits with her back to the door and lets the kids... I mean, there's a, there's another little kid in the office on the phone. That's right. Maybe she, she, she's talking with a dolly on the phone. She's just... The, the whole thing's a fucking mess. I don't know. She's really disciplined when it comes to Billy. She'll tie him up and whip him. But all these kids get away with fucking murder. Okay. What kind of establishment are you running over there? Yeah. <laughs> Double standard bitch. That's what she is. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we, we lose a couple, we lose at least one policeman in the struggle towards the end of this. And just when you think that you're going to get the satisfying payoff that, like you say, Carl, we've all been screaming for, that um, this irrational, um, kind of draconian, uh, totalitarian, like, matriarch of this house who we think is presumably going to get a comeuppance for being so unreasonable and uh, doing all this unnecessary hypocritical moralizing is finally going to get cleaved in twain by someone's axe and yes. um, uh, no, like, but yeah the film denies you that because the minute that we think Billy's about to do it he gets uh, again riddled with bullets and like I say for the second time in an afternoon this uh, group of orphans between the ages of 4 and 12 see someone dressed as Santa being uh, brutally killed at point blank range yeah it gets points for being the worst slasher movie ending ever in my books. It's, it is. It, it managed to do that. It's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, like, so he, so like, just like, uh, let's just kind of tie this off so we can just discuss the end and like, kind of how it sits for the rest of the film. Because obviously he gets he gets shot as if the kids aren't traumatized enough. With his dying breath, he literally utters the word "Santa Claus is gone" to a room full of children. Mother um, Superior's already told the children that Santa doesn't exist. At this point, by what the way. Cat. Oh, did she? I didn't catch yeah. that bit. Mm. Oh, that somehow makes the stakes even lower. <laughs> but as it ends, uh, his wee brother uh, glares at Mother Superior and says, Naughty, we know, uh, like you say, uh, Carl, evil passes on uh, kind of down the line uh, to like evil, <laughs> evil informs the next of kin. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and the little kid is like, he says to the nun, You've been naughty. Yeah. Not entirely sure why, but it, it just is a good line to end on setting up <laughs> silent night deadly night 2 where he comes back and stalks the nun which doesn't happen no it doesn't happen but what i will say is that if you've missed any of the key points of silent night deadly night uh the first 45 minutes of the sequel will have your back oh, because it replays at an exhaustive detail does it <laughs> right okay okay I, I was gonna ask actually well, well we can get to that i guess but like with that we're out on uh silent night deadly night so uh andy you first like you say multiple viewings mm. uh so uh very familiar territory for you here but uh sure. yeah you're into this one um I, like i've said already i absolutely love it i can't recommend it enough to people i wouldn't recommend it to children uh i feel like citizens against movie madness had at least that part right that you want you don't really want to expose your children to this but if they do see it, there's nothing really here apart from some boobies that's going to immensely traumatise them, assuming that they already don't believe in Santa. Yeah. What they'll definitely do is commit mass murder after it because uh, presumably they're extremely malleable and as soon as they see this, they will imitate it in real life. <laughs> yes, I mean, I've got the, um, you know, I'll give it points for managing to confuse on every conceivable level. <laughs> the, 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 the tone is confusing there are no rules to when it's funny and when it's not um the not sure if the filmmakers knew it was intentionally funny the message itself is confusing about this saying exploitation is bad but 
also being clearly exploitative itself in its nature. It's confusing about who the protagonist, who the antagonist is. And I say it effectively kills off the protagonist 30 minutes in. And so it's doing lots of cinema first. So I think it's quite a revolutionary movie. There's even a freeze frame halfway through the film where it zooms into Billy's face. And normally you see that right at the end. It must be the only time that we've ever had a 80s optical zoom in freeze frame right in the middle of the film. So I give it points for just confusing the hell out of me. Yeah, and um, and, and for that alone, I'd recommend it. <laughs> I um, I think that I, I think this is this is a real fucking head scratcher. I gotta say, <laughs> like I mean, like because uh, I, I I was gonna I I was like I said, I knew not a great deal going in, and I was like, right, presumably this is gonna be like you know just from the just from the artwork and what I knew about it, I was like, oh, this guy is gonna dress, he's gonna dress up as Santa. Something's gonna happen that's gonna set him off, and he's going to go on a big rampage. And to a certain extent, that's true, but like um. Yeah, I think that the point that you're making about the fact that this makes such a weird point and a kind of hypocritical point about uh, violence of the media and the extent to which that should be shut down or shielded from impressionable eyes is really interesting and really, really muddles the message of it. And it doesn't like it doesn't render it a meritless piece of work at all because I still had no. quite a lot of fun with quite a lot of it. But I think that like it's interesting to take a step back and look at it in the context of what was going on at the time and figure out exactly what it was trying to do versus the film they were trying to make. But that's that's what makes it interesting for me was because it came out in in that precise year where this argument was all over the news. And and in that respect it's almost like an anti horror movie. Mm-hmm. One that but seems like it's advocating for their banning, whilst at the same time showing you tits and gore. Sure. So it's, it's kind of amazing. Also, I kind of so, feel like it was a victim of its own marketing because it essentially destroyed itself. Yes, it did. It ate its, it's a snake that ate its own tail in every way. That's mm. what this film did. Yeah. That's that, that's like I also like the idea of it gang banned and the people who made it stepping back being like, "Well, well done, quite right." <laughs> <laughs> I think we've made our point, gentlemen. Yes, I, th- I think so. But I think we all enjoyed it. So Yes, agreed. Yeah, Carl, we need to talk about Benny Loves You. Uh, I, I, I much more prefer talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, we've got to talk about it a little bit. So Benny Loves You, as you mentioned at the start, um, kind of the culmination of a long road for you. Um, yes. a, like five years in the making, it played Fright Fest, obviously, in October and um, went over extremely well and has had a similar reaction at some other festivals I've seen since then and uh, some really great press. Uh, this must be a pretty exciting time. It's, I, I, you know, you're talking to a strange person. I'm like, I, 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 like I said, I try to shield myself from these things because you also do it from the bad reviews as well. I mean, for, for like you say, I'd say 90% of the reviews have been positive. There's obviously been some reviews that just say absolutely awful, piece of shit, should never be allowed to pick a camera up again. And so I think in order for those reviews not to affect you, then you also treat the good reviews with some degree of, you, you keep them separate from you. But it is a... I, I guess for me, I, this this is the stuff that I don't. I wouldn't say I don't care about it. It's nice that people react to your film so well. I mean, that's great. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like, how do I move on? How do I, you know, what's next? And so, you know, that you know, get, getting the good feedback is one thing. But is that will that translate to anything tangible where I can go on and do something else? And so, and because all that's still up in the air, I still feel a little bit like I'm in limbo at the moment, you know, sure. like you say, I, I spent five years making this, put all my own savings in, quit my job. You know, I was a, a freelance video editor and I had to quit it to do this. And so, you know, there was a lot riding on it. 
and now we're kind of waiting for the release, waiting to see what, what happens. And I guess I don't know whether I'm going to go get a job in Greg's or whether <laughs> film two is on the card. So, sure. yes, it's really nice getting the good the good feedback. You know, I'm not saying that for a second, but um, but I'm still very cautious about it. All. I, but it's been it's, it's had an amazing reaction. Yeah, um, I, t- I totally understand that. I think that I would be much the same mm-hmm. if I was in your Absolutely. position as well. Um, for anyone who kind of like exists outside of the Fright Fest and the festival bubble, and might be less familiar with it. You want to just talk a little bit about what it was about and also actually uh, where the idea came from. So actually back in 2006, I made a short film called Eddie Loves You, which was a 20, 25 minute short, which um, I just made for a laugh with uh, a couple of mates. And um, that was about actually a killer Elmo toy. And um, that we submitted to a couple of festivals and we started to get some good feedback and we won some awards with it. So I kind of put that on the shelf and then went off and made some other short films. But that was the one that I kind of felt like it had the biggest audience feedback. I mean, 10 years after I made that short, I was still getting emails, you know, every now and again, somebody saying, oh, I really like this. So it was always in the back of my mind that like a killer, I like, I like just that kind of juxtaposition between a uh, a, a cute looking teddy bear not something like child's play or annabelle mm-hmm. but something that just cute as fuck is jumping around saying the sweetest cuddliest things whilst at the same time taking out the competition you know mm-hmm. with a knife or whatever but you know that didn't have the legs to run for a feature so i kind of uh, you know rethought of the idea of how we could turn him into this sort of protector for the main character mm-hmm. so yeah benny loves you is about a uh kind of a a guy in a midlife crisis Um, I would say without giving too much away things aren't going his way in life and he really has to find a way to turn things around Um, and in doing so kind of takes the bad decision that um, he needs to just become an adult and leave all those things that made him a child behind and so kind of boxes all that up quite literally boxes all that up puts it in the basement and um you know, Benny is not his childhood um, bear that he's, uh, he's loved since he was a kid that his mum gave to him actually helped him to sleep at night and protected him is not happy with this decision that he's taken the new direction he's gone in life and decides to come back for revenge i guess i will say i won't i won't give away any two more spoilers than that but it's a comedy horror and it's uh emphasis more on the comedy it's uh it's kind of all of it is played for jokes, really, apart from, um, I guess, the relationship between Jack and Benny. But certainly, you know, all the gore and the horror is done with, uh, um, yeah, Tonk firmly in his cheek. I would say, I, I mean, I, I got to say, Carl, I, I really like the film. I, I completely understand, um, again, the reception that it yeah. did. It's the kind yeah, of thing that I like, I would love to have seen it with an audience as well. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I, that's the, exactly the kind of thing, having been at festivals for years and years and years, that's exactly the kind of thing that works best in the room with people just hearing and feeling that reaction in the room. And it's just it's such a weird time. And we've seen so many good stuff at festivals this year and that would just work exactly the same in that environment. And yeah, it's really, I, I had a great time with that. I thought it was excellent. Oh, no, I'm pleased. It was, but that's that's kind of the bit that's like I guess made me laugh. You could only laugh when these things happen because you know I spent um, a long, long time making it for the sure. sole purpose that I might get to, you know, a, a packed cinema and see an audience's reaction to it, and that mm. and that and that never happened. We did we did actually have a uh, the first showing we had um, was over at the New York Horror Film Festival, and um, you know that uh, that was good. But I was I you know I I really wanted to you know when when we'd heard about Fright Fest, I thought this this will be the best one. This will be 
you know, British sense of humor. They're going to get it. Um, you know, all the, I think the film is very British and, uh, you know, a lot of the humor is dry. There's a lot of little in jokes in, mm-hmm. in there that perhaps only um, British people would get. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was really looking forward to that. And then, you know, it, it, it never happened. So it, it's quite funny that I spent all this time making a film that I thought would go down well, you know, with a crowd of horror lovers. And uh, that may not ever happen now. We'll never get to see that. <laughs> I think that um, whether or not it ever goes down well with a crowd, I think that uh, in the physical sense, I think it is certainly fair to say that it's found an audience and that's a great thing. Yes, it, it has. The, the reaction has been... Uh, has been great and it's not i mean i guess it's nice to know because you you put something together you're not sure when it when if anyone's ever going to really see see it you know and and when you've been working on something for that long uh four years you don't even know if it's funny anymore you know it's like you know i've <laughs> seen that film thousands of times you know i've played the same scenes over and over again you go sure. back in you chop a few frames off here you swap a sound effect out you've you've just seen it so much that there's a point where you think, oh, no one's ever going to watch this. No one's ever going to like it. And so when that came back from Fright Fest, I, I, I remember it very vividly. I remember sitting there and pacing the room before it, you know, just in my house. But I remember it was about to be shown and I'm, I'm walking back and thinking, oh, God. And I thought, right, we'll probably get maybe five or six comments on this. And then just my phone just blew up after the screening. It was mm-hmm. just mental it went completely mental and i was like oh my god what the fuck is going on and that that hadn't happened at, at the other festivals it did get shown in sitches mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it they run their festival quite differently in that they you had to pay per film that you watched right so i don't think it was like fright Fest, where if you bought a season pass you know there'd be you know two or three hundred people watching your movie all at once and then you sure. get that feedback but i think the way stitches work was you know you paid if you wanted to see something and that happened any anywhere over the two weeks so fright fest was a real yeah it it, it, it was it was a real kind of um i guess a good blow i didn't expect that and sure. it just all it all kind of happened at once and then after that we went to the san sebastian film festival and we just won best film there i was gonna say um, you won the uh, audience award there Yes, we won yeah. the audience award for, for, for best film. And awesome. um, uh, uh, we showed at Popcorn Frights and we finished in the top five there. I don't know how many films were in the festival, but uh, they had an audience <laughs> vote and I was told we, we, we went to top five on that one. And I, and the other festival I was in was Trieste, which um, we've had loads, uh, it's Italy, we had loads of good reviews back mm-hmm. from there. So it, it's, but it, but it remains to be seen what happens when it goes outside of this bubble. Because sure. remember, this is, these are, these are horror fans. You know, it's a low-budget film, yes, but you can see the love and effort that's been poured in, and they'll and they'll generally react to it if, um, you know, if 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 you've done something worthwhile. But now it's going to leave that pool and it's going to go out into the wider world. And you know, I think the reaction will probably be quite different. But I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. I guess so. But no, like it's it's good stuff, man. And I'm excited to see what happens next, both for the film and for you. Definitely. Yes. Thank you very much. No, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It's been really good fun. And where can people catch up with you? and the film on social media. So yeah, if you uh, were on Twitter, so if you just uh, search Benny Loves You on Twitter, we'll come up there and uh, we're on Facebook as well. So um, all the all the news is going on there. We do have distributors, but we um, we're not allowed to sort of say what's going on exactly with that. Sure. But we're looking at a, a release uh, sometime early next year. So yeah, if you follow us on um, on Facebook or Twitter, we'll be we'll put all the updates on there when when it happens. That's awesome. Very that's that's got to be exciting as like kind of in and of itself. Yes, it, it is very much, um, and there, because there's things to do as well. Every time I think I'm done with this film, <laughs> there's 
it's it, you honestly you wouldn't believe it you think you know you think oh i've done it now there's always more things to be done and yeah, i think man. in the run-up to release i'll be involved in some other uh, marketing things you're and, gonna have to um, pull together commentaries potentially you're gonna have to pull together behind the scenes stuff uh yep i just spent the last few months doing that <laughs> um, there's talk about making a couple of spots some little advertising sure. spots so every time I, I decide to sit down and just turn every, all the all my devices off and think, right, it's time to time to write something new, it comes back up again. So at the moment it won't let me go. But that's I guess that's to be expected. Benny won't stay in the cellar, so to speak. No, no, that, that that's absolutely true. <laughs> so, and then there were parallels actually between between um, the guy in the film and me because I was very much was I was coming up to 40 and sure. I say it was a bit of a midlife crisis for me I'd always wanted to be a film director and so um, and I'd kind of never fashioned like a, a road for, I'd worked in corporate video all my life as a freelancer um, and I thought look if I'm ever going to do it then now's the time now's the time to get off my ass and do it but uh, yeah we're we'll, we'll still waiting to see whether um, you know that's a, a a journey end or the start of one Carl thanks so much for doing this with us tonight we've had a blast thank you man this was great yeah no thank you very much it's been uh, good to talk to you both. So a couple of weeks in the making, it finally happened, and what a good time. Yeah, I, I genuinely think this episode contains one of the funniest lines that has been uttered on this show in a long, long time. Courtesy of Carl. If you've already if you've listened this far, you probably know what it is, but brilliant stuff. Yeah. Yeah, huge thank you to Carl Holt, the brains of the operation behind Benny Loves You, joining us this week and talking Silent Night, Deadly Night. And we are very much in the festive season now, so who knows what kind of selections and what kind of tricks and treats we've got lined up now. Well, let me say, Mitch, let me put this in the perspective of the upcoming calendar, right? Uh-huh. We have an episode next Friday, right? And then yep. the following Friday as our festive episode previously we've done such things as jack frost and christmas evil um and this mitch will be our third one of these we may not even be in the same room who knows what it's going to be like by that time and then we're off on holiday for a fortnight imagine i know i know strange times ahead we will be uh, letting you know the particulars of the december schedule very soon indeed mm-hmm. formalizing what i've just said Aye, exactly, exactly. However, for now, we are out for another one of these. However, we will be back on Monday with another mini-sode. We'll be doing all the usual stuff. We will be venturing further into Andy's Nature Gone Wild side quest. We'll be talking about everything else we've been watching, playing Mitch's pitches, taking a look at your feedback, letting you know everything you need to know for next week's episode. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, there are, of course... Loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. You can email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com or you can join in the ever-livening discussion on our Facebook group, The Chod Locker. Yep, and Patreon. We've got one. You should be on it. Go and take a look. Patreon.com forward slash Strong Language Violent Scenes. Might have a couple of tricks up our sleeves between now and the end of the year. Mm. However, got to be in it to win it. Go over there, check it out. We are back this Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.